Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. We're brought to you today by Handy Camping Center, located at 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Proud to welcome NASCAR All-Star Festivities back to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the first time in almost 30 years. You can meet our guy, Mike Wallace, at Handy Camping Center from 11 to 1 this Friday. Talk race and talk camping gets you an autograph as NASCAR is back at North Wilkesboro Speedway. And Mike, interesting a little uh, tidbit about today's show, 75th anniversary of NASCAR, right? All the festivities over the weekend at Darlington. This is episode number 75 of our podcast. Did That's, you know that? I, I did know that, actually. So <laughs> you, this is a monumental event, for, especially is. for the guests we have coming it, it, on. Absolutely. The 1984 NASCAR Cup Series Rookie of the Year, 1989 NASCAR Cup Series Champion, inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2013, the International Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2013, and Motorsports Hall of Fame of America in 2014. In his Cup career, 706 races over 25 years, 55 wins. That's 11th all time 349 top tens and 36 polls he had wins in 16 straight seasons and had 17 top 10 points finishes ranked number 15 in nascar's top 75 drivers of all time he is currently the lead analyst for mrn radio the voice of nascar and with all of that mike probably his greatest achievement was participating in what may be the coolest radio promotion of all time when he raced against my guys, John Boy and Billy, from South Park back to our studios then on East 4th Street in Uptown Charlotte. He won that challenge. Ladies and gentlemen, Rusty Wallace, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh, man, thanks a lot. I remember that day. I'll tell you that. I had no idea we were going to be able to pull that off. If we tried something like that nowadays, I mean, they throw us in jail. Just, you know what? Oh, they, that, we, is, out of there. that is so politically incorrect but it was a great radio promotion uh people so, people still talk about yeah, that. tell me about that because i and we'll get to the, the real well, interview rusty here in a few minutes story, rusty yeah. tell us real quick about that because i remember hearing that when i moved to town that you did you guys what did you do race through town or start at one point and haul the mail from there to the studio <laughs> or something 
That's about it. We actually, it started where John Boy and Billy and those guys wanted to have a race across town. And so Rick Hendricks guys got involved and it was with their, their Pontiac dealership and gave us a pair of brand new Pontiac Firebirds. And we started off at the radio station and boy, we took off and we flew across town. Me and uh, I forgot who was with me that particular day as a navigator. But anyway, we had John Boy and Billy in another car, and we were literally running over 100 miles per hour. You're, two no, you're not supposed to say that. Oh, statue <laughs> of limitations. We were, man, we, were <laughs> <laughs> we were blowing through intersections. We were having one hell of a time. But we made it across town, made it back. I'll never forget passing a donut store. And we're live on the radio, and they say, here comes Rusty. He looks like he's running about 100. And the cops are there blocking the road off, and I throw it in this long drift and go blowing past him with the rear tires on fire. And uh, like I said, it was so, so crazy that I think about it now going, oh, my gosh, they will never put up with that nowadays. Absolutely but, not. Uh, it, was, it happened. It happened, and it brought a lot of attention. It absolutely did. That radio. That's when radio was fun. You know what I mean? You could, you could do anything, oh, yeah. and especially with John Boy and Billy. Those guys were crazy back in the day. Yeah. Well, Rusty, <laughs> the greatest part about our show here, and uh, you're number 75 on the 75th anniversary of NASCAR, so it all lines up. It's really special. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, he's my brother. I'm right. thrilled to death with him. I love him. He's, a, he's an incredible talent. And uh, so what we do, we, we take the fans, and how big is our fan base, Jeff? The whole world is listening. So, Rusty, it's the whole world that listens the to the show. World. And uh, hey, we let pretty you, big. Yeah, the, we, we got the, one of the biggest viewing audiences in, in the business, the world. And uh, everybody knows you. When I say everybody knows you, your fans think they know you as the famous Rusty Wallace. You know, the Hall of Famer, the race winner, the top driver. But they don't know the backstory. And the backstory is really sometimes really challenging and really interesting. And what we found is we'd like to ask you to kind of help tell the story about, take us back in time, the farthest you can remember back to where you remember motorsports and what you were doing and how did you start? How did you get involved in even watching, going, spending time with your dad? What, what, you, what did you do? And uh, bring us up and we'll fill some things in and we'll ask some questions along the way. Okay, well, let me try to go back as far as I could, and that was uh, when we lived in a little place called uh, Rolla, Missouri. Uh, the family did. We lived in Rolla, and uh, my dad had uh, a vacuum cleaner, uh, not vacuum cleaner. See, back then, Dad had a, a paper route. Dad had a gas station, uh, and we were living in Rolla, Missouri, and I remember we were always uh, excited about racing. You know, Dad did it a long time ago when he first started, and, uh, and we lived and I would just go to this little dr drugstore called uh, Scott's Drugstore. I'll never forget. And I would go back in the magazine section. I would sit on the ground right in front of the magazines. I used to look at pictures of Leroy Yarborough and, and Cale Yarborough and all these guys back in the day. And I used to think, my God, I wish I could do that one day. And they used to take us to mom would uh, mom would always take us to a roller rink. And I'd run around that roller rink making car noises going, God, I want to be a race car driver. And I would just zip around there. Well, fast well, fast forward, we moved up to St. Louis, and uh, and we started hanging out at this place called Valley Park Speedway. And Dad was racing a little bit there, and, and me and Mike and Kenny were kind of his pit crew. We were helping him. Well, he uh, took one of his cars and, and wrecked it and got hurt pretty bad in Rolla, Missouri, and he ended up giving me the car, and he said, look, if you guys can fix this thing, I'll let you race it. But I was like 15 years old or something, and I wasn't really old enough to race it. And so uh, I had to go to the court, and the court had to put a document together saying I was if the mom and dad signed off, they would let me race. So we put that car together and patched it all up and took it to my very first race at Lake Hill Speedway, and I won the semi-feature event, the very first race I was in, I won there at Valley Park. And then uh, that put me in the big race, the main feature event. Well, I got so excited about the semi-feature event that I got to put gas in the car. And when the race started, the big feature event started, I ran out of fuel in my first big, big race. But I did win the semi-race, and that kind of got me involved in the sport and got me going right there. Yeah, so... <clears throat> but I can... Go ahead, I'm sorry. 
No, I'm just saying that you, we can we can break every now and then and, and break up the career because because this is a long conversation if we're going to go back as far as I can go, you know. But yeah, uh, we're going to fast forward. We're going to go every 15 minutes. That's how the show goes, and so we're going to we'll jump around, jump a little bit. around. Yeah. Just but it's what the what the theory behind it is is I always say people who were you before who you are. And our, our fans have acknowledged over 75 shows. Now we've got to know what they're looking for. And they, they tell us, wow, we really like what we're hearing. We like that backstory because you don't hear that. You know, you don't hear that during the broadcast. You were at Darlington on Sunday doing MRN and did an incredible job about it. But you were calling the race. You know, it wasn't nothing about the past. And uh, your career is incredible. I mean, what, starting from nothing. And I'll say from nothing, I I was kind of eyewitness to what took place, but it sounds better coming from him what he did, and and to be a, a superstar Hall of Famer, and uh, is pretty cool. So after you ran, well, out, I so that that area right there, then uh, after you know won that first race, that got me really excited about you know wanting to do more and wanting to go to different racetracks. So I met a fellow by the name of Charlie Chase in St. Louis, Missouri, and Charlie already had a team. Uh, that he started and he was racing in Valley Park also. So when he saw me coming up, he said, you know what, I'd, how about you and I partner up? Let's get together and we'll start our own team and we'll do that. So then Charlie and I partnered together and man, we started racing all around the country and doing real well. And then, uh, it was, it, it went great. And then he had, it was going so well. He said, you know what, you guys are rocking and rolling, but you're wearing me out. And so I sat down with Charlie and I'll never forget, I bought them out, and it was like $3,000 or something for me to buy the partnership out. We did that, which, which back then was a really big deal. And Charlie is still one of my best friends today, and he lives in St. Louis. Uh, so then I, I said, okay, it's time to get out of St. Louis. It's time to get on the road. It's time to build my brand. You know, I didn't even know what that meant, brand and stuff, but I knew I just wanted to let everybody know who Rusty was and try to win some races. So then I started going all around doing um, some USAC racing uh, where I would run USAC cars. And then after I'd run USAC cars, then I'd come back and I'd run some more short track cars around, uh, you know, Springfield, Missouri and places like that. And I had Larry Phillips helping me, uh, guiding me along, who was a great race car driver out of the Midwest, right out of Springfield, Missouri. In fact, uh, Larry, you know, is, is, is in the Hall of Fame, NASCAR Hall of Fame. And just he's that great. And so then uh, then we I mentioned the USAC stuff. I started doing USAC all the way back in 1980 and uh, won uh, several races up at the Milwaukee Mile, raced against A.J. Foyt and a lot of the, the, the real big drivers back then. Was able to beat them uh, on, on a – and uh, really kind of got my name out there. But I was doing so much of that, popping all over the place. I said, okay. I got to get some credentials. I got to say I've won a championship. I got to say I've done something. So the 1983 season, now this is the key season. 1983 is when I finally sat down and started bouncing around all these different tracks. Said, I got to go for a title. You got to have a title. You just can't say I've won this track. I've won here. I've won there. So I went and uh, put a lot, a big effort into 83. And when it was all said and done, I won the championship. And soon as I won the championship, the ASA championships, I got a phone call from down south, NASCAR, uh, Gatorade boys, saying, hey, look, we got a car down here, the uh, number 88 car, and we got a fellow by the name of Jeff Bodine driving it, and we're looking for a new, a new young driver. And so the owner of the team was a guy named Cliff Stewart, but the sponsor was Gatorade, but Gatorade was really involved in all the decision-making. So they hopped, and I moved from St. Louis, the family, everybody down there, and uh, – that was 1984. I moved from St. Louis to the, I guess it had been December of 83, and then was ready for the, the 84 season. And I ended up winning the rookie of the year in the 88 car. And then the following year, it didn't go so well. We blew a lot of engines, had a lot of problems, and and we uh, really not, not going anywhere. We just couldn't get any momentum going on. And then I got another phone call from the Blue Max Racing Team who had the late Tim Richmond driving for him. And I went to work for those guys. And on my third race in, I won. And then five races or four races after that, I won again at, Mar at Martinsville. And boy, after I won that first race, I thought it was a fluke. I said, man, I don't know. And it was a Bristol where I won. I said, I don't know if, if that was a fluke or what happened. But after I won that second race at Martinsville, I said, okay, 
that wasn't a fluke. And we got a, we got a good team and we're rolling. My career took off. Then we started winning a ton of races. Uh, one in 86, a couple in 86, one, a couple in 87, won six of them in 88. And then the big coveted 1989 season when I got involved in that and we won the championship. So that was a, a, a heck of a little run right there for us. That's for sure. Yeah. So backing up just a little bit or a lot, just because again, the fans want to know things was you just made your career sound really easy, but I yeah. know it wasn't. And, it, and to me, it all came together pretty quickly. You said you had a bad season, but, I mean, you won the ASA Championship in 83, Cup Series Rookie of the Year 84, boom, 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 maybe one or two bad seasons, and then you were off and running, though, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of rare. Yeah. Well, you know, I won the Rookie of the Year in 84, but 84 was a terrible season. It, you know, we had a lot of wrecks, a lot of problems, a lot of growing pains. I, I was a young driver racing short track cars trying to figure out how to drive a NASCAR car. And I was asking a lot of questions to many people. I was talking to Neil Bonnet. I was talking to Bobby Allison. I was talking to Bud Moore. I was talking to all kind of people to help me guide me along. Just like I was talking to the late Dick Trickle, who guided me guided me along in my, through my ASA career. Now, I can go back a little bit there. I started hanging out with Dick Trickle, one of the most popular drivers and one of the best drivers in the world, back in like 1978 or 77. And he's the one that kind of gave me a lot of great um, – uh, advice about how to get those ASA short track cars to run so fast. And back then it was Alan Quickie, Mark Martin, myself running those cars. But after, you know, I settled down and, and again, went for that uh, 83 ASA championship. That's what's got me in the cup. But now you're talking a couple of bad years. 84 was a really bad year, you know, but I was able to hold off uh, and win the rookie of the year. And uh, it, so that went really good. That was big. And then, like I say, we went into 85, and, and the bad bad stuff continued. I We blew 23 engines one year. I mean, it was so many engines we were blowing up, it was incredible. But but in between that, I'd had some good runs. I went to Nashville, Tennessee. I finished fourth. I went to North Wilkesboro, finished uh, third or fourth or something like that, also in that Gatorade car. People could see that. They said, hey, I think he's got what it takes. You know, he's just having so many problems with this car. And the Blue Max guys, they saw that in me, and that, that's the reason they hired me. And that's what really got my career going. Cool. Let's take a time out right here. We're talking to NASCAR Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speedsport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. On April 4th, 1976, Cale Yarborough, racing for Junior Johnson at the time, beat Richard Petty to the checkered flag after leading 364 laps of the Gwynn Stanley 400 at North Wilkesboro. And four miles down the street, Robert Handy Camping was born that very same year. Family owned and operated since 1976 in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, Mama, Scott, and Robert are always happy to take care of all your camping needs. With coach brands like Flagstaff and Salem and and every part your camper may need. This year, the NASCAR All-Star Race Week will be returning to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the first time in almost 30 years. And NASCAR driver Mike Wallace will be at Handy Camping Center from 11 to 1 Friday, May 19th with Scott and the gang from Handy talking racing, camping, and everything in between. Handy Camping is located at 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Race fans, see you there as NASCAR returns to North Wilkesboro. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You are listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Handy Camping Center, 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Family owned and operated since 1976 with coach brands such as Flagstaff and Salem and every part your camper may need. Handy Camping Center, proud to welcome NASCAR back to North Wilkesboro Speedway. Meet our driver, Mike Wallace, in person this Friday from 11 to 1 at Handy Camping Center. Once again, on the line today, Rusty Wallace. Once again, here's Mike. Rusty, you've been going through your career and championship years and rookie of the year years, but take me back. I happen to remember this story, but I don't remember the year because I thought it was so monumental. You came out, you were in the ASA series, 
winning races, and you had an opportunity that was just out of the blue. I call it out of the blue. It was probably well orchestrated and a lot of effort put towards it. But you drove a car for Roger Penske, a Chevrolet Impala or a Caprice, something like that. You ran Atlanta, and I want to say it was your very first NASCAR race. And if it wasn't, it was close to that. Dale Earnhardt won the race, and you ran second. I mean, it was an incredible thing. And I remember after the race uh, that Roger Penske, I heard him over say to Rusty, and uh, he said, I'm going to make you a star someday. Yeah. And then then they didn't race together for a long time. What, what year was that? Do you remember by any chance? Well, it was 1980 season, and uh, I got a phone call. My, myself and, and Don Miller, who was kind of tutoring me along through most of my career, uh, really helped me a ton. And he actually worked for Team Penske. And he he told Penske one day, he said, look, he said, I got this young guy that I'm working with. We kind of live real close together in St. Louis. He, he's won a lot of races, and boy, I'd love one of these days to give him a shot. And so Roger said, well, tell me more. And he told him about my career. And he said, well, I'll tell you what I got. I got a, an old 1980 Caprice, Chevrolet Caprice, that we bought from Brand, Banjo Matthews, and it's a brand-new car. And you know, Don, that I decided to get out of uh, cup racing He said, and focus on IndyCar. He said, but if you're thinking about this, maybe we ought to go drag that car we bought that's still in storage, and you guys come up here and put that thing together, and we'll go test at Atlanta because I, I think that would be a good track. He said, we'll go test at Atlanta and, and enter Rusty in the race and see how he does. And so uh, we went to Reading, Pennsylvania and took that car out of storage Hired a guy named Tex Powell, one of the greatest crew chiefs around. And old Tex Powell and myself and Don Miller and a host of other guys put that car together. We put that whole car together and got it all done. Took it to Tex or took it up to Atlanta, Georgia. And at that particular time, Roger owned the IROC series. And he said, Okay, I'm gonna put you in these IROC cars, get you some seat time, get you a little practice and so he actually put me in there with a the guy with Rick Mears. I couldn't believe that. One of the greatest drivers in the world with me and Rick Mears tested these IROC cars. And so I got some reps around uh, Atlanta. And then we took the car there, the the Caprice, and we tested it. And we got it handling pretty good to my liking. And we entered the race. We came back for the race. And uh, I'll never forget that we're running. We qualified seventh. I was so happy. But then we were having all kinds of problems with the engine. It kept overheating. We could not figure out what was going on. It kept overheating, overheating. Well, it, we freaked out at the very end, and Roger went and bought an engine from Foyt, who was in the race. We put that motor in, went out for last practice of the day, and it was overheating again. And we said, what in the world? What we did wrong, uh, back in the day, you used to put metal plates behind the screen to do what we call block off the front end for qualifying. And you wouldn't put tape across the grill like we do nowadays, uh, or how they always did, I mean. But we left that plate in there accidentally. Oh, my God, we couldn't believe it when we found it. We pulled it out. All of a sudden, the motor's running perfect. I started the race, and we just had a great day. The car handled, and it was just perfect. And I finished second. I could not believe I finished second to the up-and-coming Dale Earnhardt. Not many people knew Dale Earnhardt back then. Uh, and so finished second to him. And then uh, I said, Roger said, okay, that was really, really good. Let, let's let's do a couple more. So then we built the new Chevrolet. Uh, I think it was another Chevrolet Caprice or Impala or something. And uh, entered it, and I had a terrible race. Broken engine, broke a drive shaft. Then I entered another one. And I got in a wreck and had more mechanical problems. And Roger said, hey, look, let's just stop right here. He said, "You, I can tell right now Atlanta was great, but you need some more experience. And he said, what I want you to do, I want you to go back to what you were doing. Keep beating those bull rings down to the Midwest. Keep on doing that. And then hopefully one of these days our paths across again. I said, well, you're telling me this was my biggest break of my life? And now I can't continue. He said, you know, hopefully our paths are cra- uh, happen to cr- cross again. So then, you know, that's when now it's now, now we're going to back up again now and go back into uh, NASCAR land. And uh, so that was 80. Okay. So 1980, uh, let, me, let me back up. I'm getting confused myself. So 1980, that's when that happened. 
So then I went to short track racing again, kept short track racing all over the Midwest, kept doing all kinds of stuff like that, getting more experience, more experience. And then the 83 season comes up, and that's when I said, okay, now i got to go for a title. And I know I'm repeating what I just said earlier in the segment, but I won the title in 83. That got me the phone call to get back in the cup. I got back in the cup. Career started taking off. Okay, so now I'm with the Blue Max team, and we get running with the Blue Max guys, and I end up winning the championship in 1989. And, well, the following year, Raymond Beetle, my car owner, starts running out of money. He's, you know, having tough times. And Rick Hendricks started helping us. He, Rick was starting to pay some of the bills. Well, I could tell that the team was just about broke, and that was going to be it. But we did win a title, and we had a hell of a year. But Roger Penske saw that happening. And he, uh, we, we gave him a call and I said, Hey Roger, you told me to go get some more experience. I just want a championship. Do I have enough experience now? <laughs> and he said, and, and he said, hell yeah, you do. He said, let's, let's, he said, let's start a team. I said, well, the Miller Brewing company just called me. They want to sponsor me. And so he said, really? I said, yeah. So we got on an airplane and we flew up and we talked to Miller Brewing company. He said, we'll sponsor the team. So myself, and, and and Roger Penske and Don Miller, we all sat down and said, and Roger said, let's start the team. I'll make you all partners. He said, I'm always going to own the majority of everything. We said, fine. He said, so I'll, I'll own 52%. Uh, Don, you can own 24%. Rusty, you can own 24%. Let's start this team and get going. I said, wow, unbelievable. So we started a brand new team. We started a brand new team back in 1991, and off we went. So if I can ask you, and I – we always seem to go forward and back up on our show because there's something leads into a story. But how did when Raymond Beetle owned the team and you said that he was kind of struggling in the final year with money? Just a curious question, I think. Uh, how did Rick Hendrick get involved? How I mean, was that something like you called him or he seen it or somebody knew what was going on? How does a another car owner get involved in a team like that to help you guys oh. out? Well, Rick Hendrick before NASCAR, he loved drag racing a lot. He used to love drag racing, and one of the greatest drag racers in the world was Raymond Beetle driving the Blue Max car. Okay. So Raymond, Raymond ended up knowing Rick Hendrick really good, and they became really good friends. And so as Raymond decided he wanted to come down and get into NASCAR, he was talking to Rick about it a lot also because Rick was already in NASCAR by that time. And so Rick was helping uh, Raymond help, help him with the team, uh, giving him advice, advice and all kind of stuff like that. So Rick and Raymond were always really, really wonderful friends. And so when Rick saw the team start to struggle, Rick was really, his team was really rocking and rolling at that point, doing real well. But, you know, the Blue Max team was probably the top team out there, better than the Hendrick team at that point, and, uh, as far as when it comes to wins and stuff. Uh, so he saw it struggling. He wanted to help. He, want, he wanted to help Raymond, and so he did. You know, he helped him, and and then, but, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough that we needed to finish the year. Uh, but at that point, still, the friendship really took over between Raymond and and uh, and Rick, and they stayed really tight right to the day that uh, Raymond passed away. So that 1989 year that you won the championship, w what was the catalyst of that? I mean, and what I'm asking there, I, I remember hearing the stories. I lived in St. Louis at that time. You know, I'm watching my big brother on television and this and that. What made you guys so successful? Because I remember always hearing the broadcasters say, oh, this is a fun team. They're, they're interwined. They, they have fun together. They race together. They win together. Mm -hmm. Was there something that you, you all of you brought to the team at once or was it just a group of hardcore racers? What was that Blue Max team in 89? Just basically, it's almost a group of bad news bears. It really was. It was all, none of those guys... All those guys were aggressive. Hardly any of them were married, so no, nobody had any ties. Uh, they could stay work. They could stay at work as late as they wanted to. They, if they went to work at eight o'clock in the morning, if they wanted to stay till ten o'clock that night, they could. They did, uh, and they just wanted it bad. They wanted to win real, real bad. And Barry Dotson was our lead guy, and a guy named Harold Elliott, who was the chief engine builder. Between those guys, they really made it happen. And then we had a bunch of young bucks coming on. We had Jimmy Makar coming over, and we had Todd Parrott growing up, and we had all these guys. And, man, I tell you, we had some of the fastest pit stops, and we had guys that would just not quit. I mean, they just loved it. And um, 
that not many other team members were like that. It was just they just didn't fit that mold. These guys were cool, man. They were just really cool, good-looking guys that just were aggressive. Uh, they just wanted to win. And, uh, you know, they just came off of working with Tim Richmond, who was one of the wildest guys out there, and they had that real wild feel to them. And then I came on kind of happy and cocky, and uh, I was confident in my capability, but I really was dying to show it with a big team, you know. And uh, we just took off. It just started flying. I mean, it went through. 86 was great. 80 was great. 88 was great. 89 was great. 1990, we win the Coca-Cola 600. We win the doggone race out in Sonoma. Every single year with Blue Max was amazing. Uh, There's hardly nothing went bad with Blue Max. But we were spending so much money that we couldn't bring that much sponsorship money in. And and we almost ruined Raymond Beetle. <laughs> but, but he was he was loving it too, man. He we were just on top, and uh, we were on top. Six to, to got right to the end of the nineteen ninety season. We really were. Yeah, it sounds really good when you think about those names, Jeff. That he just I mentioned. It. I know it. Those are some hero names. Those are names in, from back in the day, absolutely in the sport, and uh, they were talked about a lot. Through, through the media, it always uh, it intrigued me. Again, I wasn't down in this area at that time. It's like, man, them guys are having fun and winning all these races. So you get through that, and we're going back to now Roger Pence. You've called Roger. You won a championship. Says, Roger, let's get to, you know, can we get together? He makes you guys a, a business proposal. You go get Miller Brewing Company as a sponsor. Then how does it, how does it all start coming together at that point? Well, at that point, then we, got to, then we started the team. It's a single single-car team. And uh, that was 1991 was our very first year. And we actually won some races in 1991, but we didn't run near as good as we wanted to. And I'll tell you, we we put a lot of uh, NASCAR guys together. And Roger's IndyCar background was very, very polished. All of his cars and vehicles and the way he you know showed up at the track was just way, way smoother and cleaner and more more buttoned up than we've ever been in NASCAR. And uh, I will tell you, he, he loved being a NASCAR, but he just didn't like the way we were presenting ourselves. And that was a terrible meeting. I got a phone call from him and uh, we went to Daytona. We're down there in Daytona for a test and he wants to meet us. And he says, I want to, guys, I want to give this team to you and Don and I want to get out of it. And I said, what's going on? And he said, he started telling me some stuff. And I said, look, man, I gave up driving for Junior Johnson to come to you and start this new team. I had Junior done. I had Budweiser done. And I didn't do that because I wanted to drive for Roger Penske. I said, so don't spin out on me now. That's the words I use. I said, don't spin out on me now. And he'll never forget that. He says, okay, all right, but God darn it, I I want it this way and I want it that way, and I want more of an engineering approach, and I want this and that. And I said, okay. So that was it. You know, I'm going to back up, guys. That was a 19, actually the 1992 season when that happened, okay? Uh, so anyway, we get the year done. Uh, we finished, like, way back in the points, 13th, 14th, something like that, something I'm never used to finishing that far back. And we got our act together, and we put it together, and we come out swinging like you weren't believing in 1993. And when it was all said and done, we just started winning and winning and winning. And when it was over, I won 10 races in 1993. But I, the only reason I lost the championship was I was in that bad wreck with Dale Earnhardt at Talladega where I broke my wrist and flipped end over end many times. And that kept that, that caused me to miss a couple good races because I broke and had problems and all that. But 93 was a hell of a year. We came back and Roger said, my God, you guys rebounded. I, this, this is amazing. And his love for NASCAR just deepened, and it got better and better and better and better at that point. So that that was a, a great little run right there. Good spot for a timeout. We're yep. back in the day with Rusty Wallace talking Penske Racing. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media.
On April 4th, 1976, Cale Yarborough, racing for Junior Johnson at the time, beat Richard Petty to the checkered flag after leading 364 laps of the Gwynn Stanley 400 at North Wilkesboro. And four miles down the street, Robert Handy Camping was born that very same year. Family owned and operated since 1976 in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Mama, Scott, and Robert are always happy to take care of all your camping needs. With coach brands like Flagstaff and Salem and every part your camper may need. This year, the NASCAR All-Star Race Week will be returning to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the first time in almost 30 years. And NASCAR driver Mike Wallace will be at Handy Camping Center from 11 to 1 Friday, May 19th with Scott and the gang from Handy talking racing, camping, and everything in between. Handy Camping is located at 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Race fans, see you there as NASCAR returns to North North Wilkesboro. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Handy Camping Center, located at 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Proud to welcome NASCAR All-Star Festivities back to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the first time in almost 30 years. You can meet our very own Mike Wallace at Handy Camping Center from 11 to 1 Friday. Talk race and talk camping. Get you an autograph as NASCAR is back at North Wilkesboro Speedway. Way. On the line, NASCAR Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace. Once again, here's Mike. Well, brother, I think I always, like I knew part of your career or most of it, but I, I realize I don't. I didn't realize that Roger Penske kind of was going to get out of the sport on you, as you just mentioned. And But you says, don't spin out on me. <laughs> it's funny. I can hear him saying that to Roger Penske. <laughs> and, uh, there might have been a few choice words in there, too. Yeah, right? but I just <laughs> kind of a cool, cool phrase to say to him. And so he didn't spin out on you, but what did you guys do? Like in a, it had to be in a short period of time. What what did you do to, besides win all those races the following year to to change your team around that he liked it that way? Well, the really the big thing that happened that turned the whole team around was when we hired Buddy Parrott to be the crew chief. Uh, Buddy Parrott took over the operation, and Buddy started really making our pit stops the the best out there. We in 1993, we had some of the fastest pit stops you've ever seen in your life. Buddy had everybody testing, uh, you know, practice and pit stops. Uh, we were at the racetrack a lot, testing more of an engineering approach to it. And we just armed ourselves with, with better everything, better organizations, better pit stops. You know, our engines were strong. Uh, and I would say one of the key factors, so if I had to narrow it up, I, I had to give it to the leadership of Buddy Parrott. He, he did a ton for us. And then uh, then he put his son, um, uh, Todd Parrott, in charge of the chassis of the car. And Chad was just one of the most organized. I mean, Todd was just one of the most uh, organized people in the world. He kept great notes, uh, really had like great communication with me. Um, myself, Jimmy Maycar, Todd, all of us, we just had did a lot of great talking together. And uh, it worked out fantastic. So there, there, that's a little bit of what we changed. I can't remember everything, yeah. but I just... I'll tell you that uh, Buddy Parrott was probably the key, though. So that that 1989 championship win with those young hyper guys that were wide open, wanting to do it, did that type of enthusiasm continue there at Penske Racing, or was it a more matured uh, directional approach, I guess you would call it? Or, or were you still having yeah, that, fun? That was a good good question. We're still having fun. I, I don't know if I ever had as much fun as – People say that people say, "Oh my God, if you're not having fun, you're not running good." Well, a lot of times, if you're having fun, you're not focused enough. You're not you're not gonna run good. <laughs> and I was just a that always stayed real focused. I wanted to have fun too, but I just it wasn't a constant party with me. You know, yeah. especially when things were getting tougher and tougher. You know, back when you're you're on top and it seems like you can't lose anything, like in '86 through. 90 yeah we were having fun and we were having a good time we were winning and all that then it got tougher and tougher and tougher then we got had to get more and more focused but uh the attitude of all those guys i will tell you still was pretty wide open they they still had a lot of fun but they knew who they were working for they knew they were working for roger penske and they knew they better not embarrass that man they knew how popular he was and, and he won everything in the world in racing you know whether it's imsa and indycar and Formula One and everything he's ever been involved in, he's been a winner. Then he takes a shot to do NASCAR, and we don't want to disrespect it. We want to do it right for him. And he taught us a ton, you know. Uh, 
He had many, many meetings with us, you know, about how he thinks it should go. But he admitted that he doesn't know what probably we knew. Uh, but he knew, he, he looked on enough um, at what other teams were doing and other cars were doing. And he always would always ask us, hey, I see this car doing this. And I see this particular bodywork bent out like shape different. And our cars are not like that. Why are they doing that? He asked a ton of questions. And um, he got very, very smart. He, he, he taught himself a ton. I mean, he hired what was probably one of the best teams out there, basically the Blue Max team into Penske Racing. And, uh, but at the end, at the end of the Blue Max year, Raymond, uh, not Raymond Beetle, Barry Dotson had a big offer to start a new team financially that nobody can compete with. He went, he went and done that. Harold Elliott decided it was the right time for him to start his own business uh, an engine coding business. He did that. And so we lost some key people when we first started team Penske, uh, that were really good. And, and that was the one I'm being Harold Elliott and one I'm being, uh, a Barry Dotson. But uh, so, uh, but the state, the team was still was wide open and fun to deal with. But we were more buttoned up, that's for sure. I got you. Well, one comment I want to bring up and get your your analytical view, I guess you'd say on it. I talked to Ray Abraham years ago about you, and you know, of course, he had tremendous success with Jeff Gordon. And he he told me we were at Hendrick Motorsports one day, and we were standing in the shop there. And we went back in this little room where he did his final setup that the whole team wasn't allowed in. And he looked at me square in the eye and he goes, you know, he says, if I could ever get Jeff Gordon as dedicated as your brother Rusty Wallace is and understands the type of chassis and understand all the chassis work, he says, we'd really kick their butt. Meaning they were winning races, but yeah. he was so complimentary to you about your knowledge of the race car. How? Tell the world, how, how did you maintain or obtain all that knowledge? Because everybody that talks in racing, even today, and, and here lately, you've got a lot of prompts from a lot of younger drivers of guys that knew how to work on their race car, and it was you. How, what, what prompted you to do that? Well, it, it all started back in ASA days. I, I'll start off this conversation by saying one thing, and I've, I learned a long time ago. There is no I in a team. So I get a lot of props for working on the chassis and things like that. But I always surrounded myself with smart people, people that hopefully knew more than me. That, and I, but I was good enough to ask a lot of questions, try to ask the right questions. But the American Speed Association back then, I mean, that taught us to work on our own cars. We had to make the right shock selections, the right spring selections, the right air pressure selections. The ASA series taught me to work on the cars. And it, when I got in the NASCAR, it carried right over. And, it, and when the engineering uh, age started, I couldn't let loose. I had to stay involved. And I firmly believe to this day, right to the day I hung up my hat driving that NASCAR car, if I would have ever, ever pulled back and, and tried to turn those responsibilities over to somebody else, I'd have fell flat on my face. Because I had to be, you know, driving that car like an onboard computer and feeling it. And instead of coming in and going through this long explanation about what we need to do, I would say, change that spring, change that shock, and let's do this, especially in practice. Now, look, when we'd sit down after practice, we'd have long conversations, you know, whether it be at the bar or in the back of the truck or back at the hotel or wherever about what we're going to do. We, we would almost every week with Blue Max – we come back, we go right in the bar, we sit down and have a beer, we lay a bunch of notes out, and us as a group would sit there around a round table drinking some beers and talking about the car. And that's all we would talk about. And then we would actually say, okay, this is what we're going to do for tomorrow's race. Uh, let's change our right front spring. Let's put some more wedge in this thing. Let's drop that air pressure out, and that's how we're going to start. And, boy, I tell you what, 90% of the time it worked. And um, But I always loved that chassis end of it, and I'd never – I had to stay involved in it. Now, there's a lot of drivers that people see, and they, they know they're good drivers. They can really drive good, but they really don't care about wanting to understand the, the, the engineering and the, and the components of the car and springs and shocks and stuff like that. And they do well, too, you know. And they're actually doing better and better in this new age of NASCAR where it's all simulation. But back then, man, I just I just could not turn loose of it, and it paid dividends for me. Now, another uh, person that made a an overwhelming comment about you and your team, a compliment comment, of course, was Doug Yates, 
We had Doug on a couple weeks ago, and Doug and I have talked in the past. He goes, and you might know the exact year. He didn't identify it exactly. It had to be in the 90, early 2000s, whatever it had been. He says, out at Sears Point, and I, if you remember this, Ray, this qualifying session, tell me about it. If you don't, we'll, we'll move on. But he says, you sat on the pole out there, and at that time, you or and Penske Racing, let me rephrase, Penske Racing, or the engine building department for Penske Racing, had developed some engines that turned some incredible RPM compared to anybody else's stock car engines. And I guess they tore your motor down, and they laid all the parts out on a table, according to Doug. And Doug says, as well, good a builder as we were, he made us look like we were kids in kindergarten with the parts and pieces yeah. that were in their motors. Is, is that a true story? Yeah, that's that's a pretty true story. And that was all Roger Penske right there. He said, okay. He said, we're really starting to win everything now. And that uh, I think that particular season with the two was the 2000 season. And we went, we were we were winning some poles, and uh, and our engines were incredible. And uh, what happened was Roger teamed up with Ilmore Engineering in England, who was doing a lot of the IndyCar stuff, and said, here's an engine. We sent him the best engine we had. Roger said, make this better. Figure a way to make this better with all, with, with being dead legal. He said, I'm not going to put up with anything that's even partially illegal. I want everything dead legal, but use your minds. And the guys from Elmore Engine, Elmore, started taking it apart. They looked at the oiling system and said, well, this can be improved on. They looked at the valve train system and said, this can really, really be improved on. They looked at the weight of the pistons. They looked at the weights, basically weights of everything and found out that all the components were so heavy that didn't need to be that heavy. And so when they designed this stuff and started sending parts and built the first motor, suddenly the motor immediately started revving more. It went from maybe a top RPM of 9,000 RPMs to a 10,300. And the engine started screaming. We were qualifying like a 9,000, now we're turning 10,300. And then uh, the motor is just making, you know, almost 50, 60 horsepower more, maybe, maybe more than that. Then all of a sudden we put it in a car, and I just started killing everybody. I started just pole after pole after pole after pole, and it went on and on and on. And so finally it got, it got we were dominating so hard with all these poles and stuff that uh, it's we were at Sears Point. And I guess there was a lot of conversation going on about the car, how much RPM it was turning, and people could hear it and all this stuff. And um, so I went out there, sat on a pole, and that was it. And so I think we got a big, we got a phone call from Bill France Jr. back in Daytona. That that I mean, they did. And uh, Mr. France would always call, us, "How's it going out there, boys?" Cause he's he's in Daytona. He went to the races a lot, but he's in Daytona. He's the guys down there, and he says, and I think it was Gary Nelson who was the guy who was in charge then. He said, "I want you to take that engine apart in a million pieces. I want you to take it apart in front of everybody, so everybody can see what the hell they're doing." And uh, and get off my ass or bitching about how how fast those Penske engines are. Boy, that, that's so a- they took the engine. <laughs> so they took the engine. They laid it on a blue tarpaulin, took a tarp and laid it on the ground, and and started ripping the motor apart right in front of all the teams. And uh, and uh, it, it was unbelievable. It was like being raped in front of everybody. It, it had to be horrible. And uh, it was terrible. And so we're watching this happen, and we're calling Roger, telling him what's going on. And Roger is out of control mad because basically all this money we spent on development, he just gave it away to everybody free to see. And so they all got long-range cameras and uh, big photo lenses. And and the ones looking the hardest was the Yates boys because they were the smartest, I thought. And they said, I cannot believe this. I mean, I cannot believe the parts I just saw. I would have never even dream this and they come up to me and said rusty i am so sorry this happened to your team we know how hard we work to develop pieces he's but we know how hard you work to develop those pieces but we had no idea what we just saw was even a, 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 it was even in somebody's mind um that engine i think if i look back in the days i think it had three oil pans on it they took the oil pan off and there was another oil pan took that oil pan off then there was another oil pan and uh, we were, they were really controlling oil flow, how do we keep the oil splash off the crankshafts to make power. Uh, but these guys with Ilmore went really, really deep on this engine and built a perfectly legal motor that nobody thought about. 
And then NASCAR, after they tore our motor down, they came in and they made weight limits on almost every engine part in an engine after they saw our motor. And uh, they were trying to c control costs, too, because they didn't want the cost to get crazy with engine development. And that was it. That was about the motor deal. Yeah, Doug was highly complicated. And it sounded just like what you just said. He he was, he was, says, I, I felt horrible for him because he says, I know how hard it was to make power from our company. You know, how much money they spent, right. time, more time, technology. And he says, man, they took and laid it all out in front of everybody. He said, but boy, did it make us look bad. Because yeah. like he, Rusty just mentioned there, he told him. It's a shame. Somebody puts that much work into it, and then, you know, you got to give the secret away. Yeah, it's, and yeah. not just give it away. They just exposed it. It's like he was saying about all the pictures and that. But uh, exciting time. When we take our final break here, and we'll take come back here, Come up. back, bring it home with Rusty Wallace. You are listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. On April 4th, 1976, Cale Yarborough, racing for Junior Johnson at the time, beat Richard Petty to the checkered flag after leading 364 laps of the Gwynn Stanley 400 at North Wilkesboro. And four miles down the street, Robert Handy Camping was born that very same year. Family owned and operated since 1976 in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Mama, Scott and Robert are always happy to take care of all your camping needs with coach brands like Flagstaff and Salem and every part your camper may need. This year, the NASCAR All-Star Race Week will be returning to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the first time in almost 30 years. And NASCAR driver Mike Wallace will be at Handy Camping Center from 11 to 1 Friday, May 19th with Scott and the gang from Handy Talking racing, camping, and everything in between. Handy Camping is located at 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Race fans, see you there as NASCAR returns to North Wilkesboro. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Handy Camping Center, 4387 US 421 in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Family owned and operated since 1976 with coach brands such as Flagstaff and Salem and every part your camper may need. Meet Mike Wallace in person this Friday, 11 to 1 at Handy Camping Center. Proud to welcome NASCAR back to North Wilkesboro Speedway. One more segment with Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace. Wallace, once again, here's Mike. Well, I think in this final segment, we need to go to current things. First of all, Rusty, the explanation of how the success with Penske Racing was and all the cool, innovative parts and technology, that, that explains why he was so fast, besides mm -hmm. his, his guidance, his driving style. So, Rusty, after all that's exposed as, uh, you know, you're still winning races, where, where does the thought come that maybe I— I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Uh, I've been, and I'm putting into my own words, win, just win, win, win. And then it's like, well, I might retire. Maybe done. <laughs> yeah. How, when did Go that happen or booth. how did that happen? What brought that up? Well, I start, uh, I was starting to get older. You know, I was in my late forties then. And then I was kind of top of my game. And all of a sudden my, my victories weren't, weren't coming as often as they were in the past. And I was honestly getting tired of living in a motor coach or living in hotels and tired of being on the racetrack a lot. And I was, you know, I was really wanting to be able to do other things. You know, I used to envy what my dad and my pilot, Bill Brooks, would do. We would always go to the racetrack. We'd fly in and dad went with me a lot. And uh, when we'd land, he would say, OK, we're going to go over to do this or we're over going to do that. And I'm always said, man, I wish I could do that with those guys. I wish I could do this and do that. But I started just getting tired. I started wearing out with travel and it got to, got up to 36 races. And then it got up to all-star race. Then it got up to the bud shoot. I said, now we're up to 38 races. And I felt like I was never home and it was just not good. And I just wanted to be home more. And, uh, so then <clears throat> I started getting wind of, ESPN wanting to get back into motorsports and they were talking to me a little bit and different TV guys were talking to me and I said, ah, kind of bah humbug, whatever. I want to stay racing. But then around the 2003 season, it was starting to really heat up. And, and I talked, told Roger about it. And he goes, Rusty said, you know what? You have accomplished everything. You've won everything there is to win except the Daytona 500, uh, basically. And you know what? Don't just don't push it too hard. And Mr. Uh, Bill France Jr. got a hold of me, said the same thing. He said, "Man, 
I've been watching your career, boy. And he said, it's been going up, 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 up. And now you, you're one of our top guys. And all of a sudden I'm starting to see you wobble at the top a little bit, and maybe going downhill a little bit. And you need to, and you need to be thinking about you know, life after this sport. I said, all right. And so, uh, I go to Daytona. What was it? 2000 and whatever. And he, he could tell he really wanted me to start thinking about life after, after racing, you know? I said, all right. So Roger and I are talking back and forth, and I told him, I said, look, man. He said, I said, his ESPN guys are calling me wanting to do some things. And so he said, I think I think it's time for you to do it. He said, you can stay racing all you want. I'm behind you 100%, you know. So I didn't have to quit. But I said, I'm tired of being on the road. That's it. I'm burned out, you know. And uh, and I think I'm going to want to do this TV thing. And Roger said, I don't want you getting hurt. You, you've accomplished everything you accomplished. I want you to go out on top of your game. And if you retired right now, you'd be on top of your game. I said, all right. So we made the decision to uh, retire at the end of the 2005 season. We announced it in 2004. Mr. France Jr. had a lot to do with it. He put the whole thing together down at Daytona International Speedway, brought me in. All the media from around the country are there. My wife, my family, everybody's there. And I announced that the 2005 season is going to be my last year. And it was a real emotional deal in 04 at Daytona. We went to Mr. Francis' house. He put a big dinner together for us. He had a lot of praise for me, and we turned into great friends. And and I've been, you know, pretty damn good friends with the family for a long time since then. But uh, that happened, and uh, so then I went to work for ESPN, and uh, I did nine years with ESPN. Had a great time doing that. Then the contract ran out. And uh, got a phone call from MRN, went down to MRN, went to work with MRN. And, and, and as I'm doing this, uh, I've been with the Motor Racing Network for nine years now doing radio. But the whole time that was going on, you know, one good tutoring thing I was getting from Mr. Penske said, look, there's life after racing. And you need to be thinking about your career after racing. And, and that's when we started working with the car dealerships. The car dealership started with myself and a guy named Ray Huffaker. And I'm proud to say we're... 32 years into it now, we're still best friends, and, and we've got nine car dealerships now in East Tennessee, and it's been fantastic, and it's it's going very, very strong right now, and uh, that's where most of my effort is being put right now. You've been in that car business for 32 years. That's how, That doesn't even seem to be possible. That's a long time, right? Yeah, I, I remember vaguely, you know, that uh, was, wasn't it Rusty Wallace, GMC Cadillac or something was the first dealership in Morristown? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's 32 years ago. Gosh. <laughs> now I wonder why I can paint now and then. It's been a long time. So uh, I get asked this question, believe it or not. People ask me because they think I know how you feel, which I don't. So I'm going to ask the question that's been asked to me over the years. Did it bother you to retire? Uh, initially, initially, it bothered me because... I went into, um, you know, I just missed driving a car a lot, you know, and then I got working for somebody else instead of basically working myself with Team Penske. And, and the whole ESPN thing was okay, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And had a lot of bosses, had a lot of opinions, a lot of this and a lot of that. And when I drove, I was, I was my boss. Roger really relied on me. He never did make me treat him like the boss we were equals and me and don miller and all of them and but when i went to espn i had many bosses and many opinions and i really wasn't having a good time i went nine years of that and and i learned a lot i don't have nothing negative to say about it it's just i there i just definitely did not have any fun and uh that was just i was you know when it ended it, it ended and that was it and i will tell you i went doing radio and all nine years of doing radio, I've had some of the best times of my life. Those guys from MRN are so fantastic to deal with. It's unreal. Well, that's and I went back and did some. I went back and did some TV not too long ago at, at, at Dover for Fox, and had a great time doing that too. But man, I, what I learned what, when I was doing the ESPN stuff, they were so big, 
uh, there were so many bosses. There was it, it, you were not working for yourself. I, <laughs> I learned one thing. I, I don't want to work for anybody any longer. I want to just develop my own companies and do whatever it takes. You know. Yes. So are you? Uh, I know the car business. You just told us about that. Or do you have any other business interest out there? I know you. Uh, you and your son Stephen. Stephen Wallace are building motorcycles that are ultra badass. Right, they're, they're, seen the photos. Yeah, yeah. Those, those things are uh, amazing. If, if you'd like, you t- tell the fans a little bit about that. And do you have any other businesses you're involved in? No, I just uh, the, the the motorcycle thing has been fantastic. It's been really good. Stephen and I get to be partners. We own we're fifty fifty owners of uh, Southern Country Customs, and we're. Uh, I'm, I think we're one of the top five builders in the U.S. now for these style bikes. And uh, we build many, many motorcycles. Uh, we build high-end Harley-Davidson baggers, they call them. And, but one of the cool things about that, we've been able to meet a lot of really cool people, a lot of, a lot of uh, NASCAR fans that love motorcycles, that love going to NASCAR races, that are big-time business owners, construction workers, concrete workers, building uh, contractors, uh, car guys, <laughs> many, many people go to daytona for two weeks of bike week down there sturgis south dakota for two weeks there we go to rogers arkansas we're going to be up in kenny bunkport maine uh here in two weeks uh we're just and we were in barrett jackson all set up but we got to meet so many wonderful people that appreciate our work on these bikes it's incredible because the to steven is just so talented it's unreal when it comes to this and right now in my life he's, he's pretty well the talk of the town when it comes to what's going on i mean my NASCAR thing has been my NASCAR thing, and it's fantastic, and I love it. I love working with the guys from MRN. We've had a great time, but the motorcycle thing is off the hook. We have are just really getting a lot of great attention because of it. And I'm up here, uh, as we're doing this interview, I'm up here and took a little break uh, to call you up, and we're here. For, we're at a big golf tournament, and most everybody at this golf tournament getting ready to lead into the North Wilkesboro race. Wants to talk about the motorcycles, yeah. about everybody. <laughs> that's so it, it, that's how popular it's got. Yeah, it's, well, it's so great to, that you were able to take a, a passion career of driving race cars and be so incredibly successful at it. Be a Hall of Famer, NASCAR's top fifty drivers. I guess now they put it in top seventy-five, but top right. fifty was bigger. And then carry it on into things after the world, after the motorsports world. Your car dealerships doing successful there. The motorcycle deal with your son Stephen. I think that's the coolest thing in the world because you both both get to be together on that. I, I went up here, Jeff. You know, there's shops not too far from where we record this show. Right. And I walked in there. I says, "Where's where's brother at?" And Stephen goes, "Oh, he's in the back." I walk back, and he's working. <laughs> Rusty's working on a bike. You know, and he. Well, here's what I do, and it's like, wow, this is kind of cool watching. So, uh, so do you guys build those bikes from the ground up, or do you take existing Harleys and customize them? No, we buy brand-new Harley-Davidson motorcycles, brand-new 2022 and 2023, and I'll buy it, and I'll roll it in, and we completely strip them down. The only thing left when we're done with them is the frame, the engine, and the wiring harness, the, the entire body, and all the wheels and tires we get rid of. And all that stuff, believe it or not, I get the same question all the time. Man, where do you sell that? Is it worth anything? And I said, no, it's not really, not much. And we get rid of that. But then we put all our custom bodies and our custom engines and our custom wheels and tires into custom colors that the customers want. And, and like I say, it's just not the bike building thing. It's the relationships we get to meet. All the, the, the really cool people that we met doing this is just really something. But. Yeah, it's uh, and I really enjoy it. I, I get really involved in building charity bikes. I built. Uh, I'm getting ready right now to start on the brand new 2023 uh, Buffalo Chips Wallace ride. That's going to happen in Sturgis, South Dakota, where we take all the money we raise, and we donate half of it to the NASCAR Foundation supporting children, and the other half to the Special Olympics of Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, and the reason we're doing that is the bike is donated. Uh, through the big dealer, uh, a guy named Jim Burgess, out in Rapid City, South Dakota. And one of his uh, charities is Special Olympics. So that's the reason we split the monies like that. We have a big, big ride, a charity ride, and we we offer we we auction things off. And the bike is one of them. Last year we raised one hundred seventy thousand dollars, and right down the middle, NASCAR got half of it, and the and uh, Special Olympics got the other half. And uh, they sent me a note the other day where they just broke ground on a brand new community center from those monies we've been raising through the bike build. 
for Special Olympics in Rapid City. In fact, they even sent me a, a gold shovel that was used in the groundbreaking. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Very cool. Well, yeah. that's got to make you feel really good. I mean, really does. You're doing some really cool humanitarian work, which is helping helping communities and having a fun time meeting people along the way. And uh, so, any anything new on the future? We got a minute and a half here to talk about it, but otherwise, oh, man. No, we're just, uh, I would tell you, let's keep going. We just keep going. Let's keep doing what we're doing. And and uh, I'm on, I'm on the board of directors of the NASCAR Foundation. We've raised millions of dollars for underprivileged children through the foundation that Betty Jane France started back in 2006. And she asked me to be on the foundation back then as a board member, and I did. And we've raised a ton of money. We're having a great time, and that's another deal. We just keep on going. You know, if if, if Mr. Penske me along, and he said when the going gets rough. Uh, what do you do? You you change some things, but you never stop. You always keep on going. Just keep moving. And so that's what I do. I just keep on going, keep on going. And opportunities pop up all the time. I've been doing a lot of public speaking uh, around the country on teamwork and things like that. Just did a, a big one in Charlotte uh, a couple of days ago. But I, I just love doing that stuff. Just uh, And above all, just uh, trying to stay healthy, too. Just stay healthy and stay going, man. That's what you do. Well, that's Let me write so- that down. All right, I got it. <laughs> so, so exciting! Glad you're doing well. Thank you for taking your time today. Maybe we'll run into each other in Wilkesboro. You gonna be? Are you gonna be up in Wilkesboro this weekend? Uh, yeah, I'll be up there on Saturday. Uh, Saturday morning, we're having a really big deal up there with myself and Winston Kelly and a lot of the legend drivers, they call it. And then uh, we're starting off that morning on a charity ride. We're leaving Tilly Harley Davidson, myself, Stephen, and Clint Boyer. Uh, raising uh, some money for the Speedway Children's Charities. We're going to ride motorcycles, some Tillys, all the way to the Wilkesboro track. So go to the North Wilkesboro Speedway website and check out how to get involved if you want to ride your bike up there. And I'll be doing that, and then I'll be casting the race that night with the Motor Racing Network. So I'll be there the whole time. Okay, I'm going to have to borrow a bike. I'd like to be involved. Can you hook me up? <laughs> You don't have your own motorcycle? Come on, everybody in the world's got motorcycles. <laughs> Come on, Mike. Yeah. Well, Rusty, thank you very I, much. I, 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 learned, I learned them to Kenny. I can sure learn them to you, too. You know? <laughs> you, that, you, that, you know what? Thank you for saying that. It made me feel good. Just that. So, All right. All well, right. We might join you. Thank you. Have a great golf game today, and uh, we appreciate there you taking the time. Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace, you've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by MyRace Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.